Welcome to Great Ideas, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to all of the new subscribers. And if you've been listening and haven't subscribed yet, please take a moment to do that. And either way, do us a favor and leave us a rating and review. It really does help us out. On this show, we've looked at great ideas on every kind of topic in public policy and government, from healthcare to budgets, from defense to education, from physical infrastructure to scientific research and development. But one topic that we haven't really touched on so far is, of course, the elephant in the room, COVID-19. At the time that we're recording this, the pandemic has been an active part of our lives for a year and a half. And for most of us, it's been the defining thing in our lives. Along the way, our understanding of what this coronavirus is, what it does, and what we should do about it have evolved. And of course, so has the virus itself, with multiple variants now active around the world and the Delta variant changing the equation once again on the future of COVID-19. So today on Great Ideas, with all the power of a year's worth of worldwide scientific research behind us, let's look at where we are and where we're going. What do we know about COVID-19, its risks, how it's spread, how to stop its spread, and how to protect ourselves? And perhaps more important, what is it going to take to end the pandemic conditions we've been living through and get ourselves to a new and better normal? To explain and walk ourselves through all of that, we have an outstanding scientist. Dr. Jody Guest is a professor and vice chair in the Department of Epidemiology at the Rollins School of Public Health and School of Medicine at Emory University. She was previously director of HIV research at the Atlanta VA Medical Center. She's leading a COVID-19 outbreak response team in Hall County, Georgia, and other hard-hit communities across Georgia. And perhaps most fascinating, she is the COVID czar for the 2021 Iditarod race, directing all prevention plans, testing and tracing for the 1100 mile dog sled race. I can't wait to get into that particular topic. I'm just looking forward to running through everything we know on the COVID-19 topic. Dr. Guest, welcome to Great Ideas. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So let's dive in to what we know today after all of the work that you and other scientists like you have been doing over the last year and a half. First of all, what do we know about how this disease, how this novel coronavirus is spread, how it's transmitted, and how has our understanding changed, especially with the Delta variant? Sure. So, you know, transmission, we have definitely learned more over the time since March of 2020. At this point in time, we're really comfortable that it is transmitted through respiratory droplets. And so your risk for me is if I'm near you and I cough or sneeze or speak loudly, we propel respiratory droplets every time we communicate with each other verbally. And, and that is one of the reasons why masking still remains a critical element to prevent transmission of COVID-19. Some things that we thought originally that have changed as we've learned more are that fomite transmission, me touching something and getting it from that is really not as big of a risk as we originally thought. So back in March of 2020, when everyone was washing their groceries, you know, with Clorox wipes and leaving their mail out in their garage for three days to let the virus, 
you know, die on the, their mail. Those things are really not necessary any, anymore, but some things are really incredibly still necessary, like keeping my respiratory droplets from getting into your respiratory tract. So under the emergence of the Delta variant, there has been a change, scientists believe, in the transmissibility of the underlying coronavirus. You're the expert, obviously. Scientists use a term are not. I don't pretend to understand the epidemiology and the, and the technical side of this. But my understanding is that that is a measure of how many people an infected person might spread the virus to. And under the original coronavirus, you're talking about an R naught of two or three. Delta could perhaps be as high as between five and nine. And that's a big deal. Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. So you're exactly right. The R naught, you sounded like an epidemiologist. The R naught is. Hey, I, I'm, I'm a radio host. So I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty good at like an inch deep. On a, on a few things. You know, and that's probably all you need to know about R0, to be perfectly honest. But if a, our wild type, our original strain of COVID-19 had an R0 of probably around 2.5. And so that meant for every one person who was infected, if I'm infected and I go out in public and meet other people or even people in my house, approximately 2.5 people will get it from me. And then those 2.5 people will each infect 2.5 people and those people will all infect 2.5 people. So if you go through about a 10 person cycle with that, you are going to have from one infection, you're gonna have about 9,000 to 10,000 people infected 9, from that one case. Wow. That was with our original wild type Delta it probably has an R naught somewhere between five and eight, maybe nine at the highest, but five and eight is, is where we're pretty comfortable. So if we use an R naught of six and assume that if I'm infected, I'm going to um, transmit it to six people that I'm in contact with, 10 cycles through, instead of 10,000 people, I'm going to have helped infect 60 million people. 60 million. That is Wow, that is the best explanation of the difference in spread that I've heard so far. It, it was the understanding, I think, that with the original wild type COVID-19 coronavirus, underlying coronavirus, the spread was characterized largely through super spreader events. It was, it was kind of a lumpy thing. It was not that each person, I mean, look on average, you know, like I could have my head in the icebox and my feet in the oven. And on average, I could feel fine. And on average, a person could spread to two and a half people, but that's not, I think really what was happening. It was more that a few people were spreading a lot and a bunch of people weren't spreading very much. Now, has that picture changed under Delta? Is the spread pattern changed because the R0 is different? It has. And you're absolutely right. There were some very significant super spreader events at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States. And, and really what we think was happening was some people were carrying what we call a higher viral load. So they had more virus particles living in their respiratory tract that were available to be expelled out into the community. And so they were better at transmitting it than other folks. That's not really something you want to be better at, but that was really about how much virus you were holding. 
the Delta variant has a couple of really big game changers to it. And one of them is that when you get it, you have a very high viral load compared to any of the other types of COVID-19 that we've seen. So any of the other variations of it we've seen, including the wild type and alpha and beta, which were our first mutations we were really dealing with. And so, and, and that is actually regardless of whether or not you're vaccinated, you instantly have this or very quickly have this very high level of virus. And because of that, you can transmit it really fast. The difference, and I'm sure we're going to get to vaccinations, but I'm, so I'm jumping ahead a second. But if you're vaccinated with the Delta variant, even though you have this super high amount of virus immediately, your body does get rid of it faster. And that's because of the way your vaccine is working. And for people who are unvaccinated, that viral load level stays super high for a really long period of time, making it so that everyone probably is, has an easier time transmitting the Delta variant to other people than the original wild type. So far, we've talked mostly about spreading the virus. Mm-hmm. Why don't we segue to the actual risk of getting the virus. Now, this is an area that I think has been perhaps the most, I don't know, it's hard to its hard to compare where the most misinformation has occurred, but we've certainly seen plenty of stuff online. It's just a flu, it's not a big deal, versus testimonials from, from people, including frontline medical workers saying, this is no joke, folks. If you get sick, you're getting really, really sick. So let's talk for a second about severity, especially under Delta, and risk. What is your risk of getting significantly sick? So at this point in time, you know, we're in a different spot than we were a year ago because now we have approximately 50% of the people in the United States vaccinated. So now we have risk for vaccinated people and risk for unvaccinated people. And those risks are not similar to each other. Really quickly, one of the larger pieces of misunderstanding is the vaccinations are prevention, number one. They're not treatment for COVID-19. And number two, they're, they are some of the most effective vaccines we've ever seen. And their effectiveness is at keeping you from getting sick from COVID-19, keeping you from needing to be in the hospital and keeping you from dying of COVID-19. The worst case scenario things. They are also really good at helping you not get the infection, but there's a difference from being infected and being sick from COVID-19. And those vaccines are meant to keep you from getting sick from COVID-19. So we have kind of risk in two different groups. So we can, at this point in time, we can say almost everyone who's in the hospital in 2021, August of 2021, almost everyone who's in the hospital with COVID-19 is an unvaccinated person. And that is showing us how well our vaccines work. My risk as a person who's fully vaccinated is substantially different for getting the infection. It's three times less compared to someone who's unvaccinated, but my risk of getting sick from COVID-19 is eight times less. My risk of being in the hospital is 25 times less. And my risk of dying is 25 times less. So our risks substantially get worse 
for um, issues of severity if you're unvaccinated compared to a vaccinated person at this point. Well, this is a really important point in my mind because there's been so much discussion of breakthrough infections. And the statistic that's out there is that breakthrough infections only affect 0.01% to 0.29% of fully vaccinated people. But those percentages don't really, I think, resonate with people. And they also, I, I think they don't, I don't think they sort of penetrate the consciousness in the same way because of this confusion about, I have a breakthrough infection. What does that mean? I got COVID, therefore something bad happened, therefore the vaccine didn't work. And what you're saying is, no, not true at all. Think about it through the frame of, this is about preventing you from getting severely ill. And in that sense, as you said, and I just wanna spike the football on this, these vaccines are some of the most effective vaccines in the history of humankind. Absolutely, absolutely. These vaccines, and I'm gonna change the sports metaphors for, for you for a second. Please. This protein, these vaccines are what I would call a home run. They were, they were beyond our wildest expectations of what we could hope for in prevention of severe COVID-19. I mean, they're just incredible vaccines and, and that cannot be understated. Their effectiveness is changing with Delta and they're still superior to almost any other vaccine that we've ever seen. So, so far they're really still working against our most contagious variant we've seen so far previewing of what I hope we'll talk about, about where we need to go. We need to be concerned about additional variants coming up behind Delta and if these vaccines are gonna to continue to work as well. So right now against our most formidable variant, they are working very, very well at keeping us from getting sick. Has the vaccination changed the way as an epidemiologist, you think about COVID-19 this year versus last year. And I'll give you an example. I was having a conversation with a family member in New York City. Obviously, New York City in 2020 went through one of the worst bouts, one of the most trying times when it came to COVID. And now with the rise of the Delta variant, we're seeing increasing case rates. And th th there was a sense of, man, we're right back here again. It feels like a year ago. But it seems like the difference is we're worrying about a whole different set of things. It's not quite as relevant to worry. It's still relevant to worry about case rates. But what you're more concerned about now as an individual is if you're fully vaccinated, it's not so much the risk to you of getting severely ill. It's the risk of you transmitting to an unvaccinated person whose risk of getting severely ill is much higher. It's, it's sort of a different thing. It's like, if you're fully vaccinated, of course you wanna take all of the same mitigation steps, but it, again, it's not as much about shielding yourself. It's more about protecting other people who may not have that protection that you have. Absolutely. A year ago, we were worried about everyone. And we were, you know, and I'm still worried about everyone. I want to be clear about that. But there are different types of worries, as you pointed out. You know, a year ago, we were, 
you know, concerned about essential workers and what that meant and, and the risks that they were taking to keep the rest of us fed, to keep groceries coming to our houses. You know, a lot of privilege was I could stay home and other people could not. And so it led us to a very important conversation about inequities and justice in our economy, our healthcare system, our access um, and, and privilege that we all had. We, are, we still need to be having those exact same conversations, but we really have kind of two different epidemics going on at this point in time. We have an epidemic among the vaccinated, which is very, very different in that it's case numbers and wanting to make sure we're not transmitting it to other people. And, but it's hugely still the same set of issues among those who are unvaccinated. We're still watching people die when they should not be dying. We have the tools to keep people from getting the infection that then makes you sick, that then puts you in the hospital and then makes you, you know, gives you a higher risk of dying. And so it is, it's a, different set of conversations. Now in that span of time, we also saw everyone who was super eager and had access, which means a lot of different things to vaccinations, get in line and get them at very, very high rates. And this next 50% of the United States that's not yet been vaccinated is a combination of people who can't get vaccinated yet because they're under the age of 12, who some very small numbers of people who are allergic, who can't, and they need the rest of us to be vaccinated to protect them. And then a group of folks who've not yet gotten to the point of being vaccinated. And there are a lot of reasons for that still. Some are still about barriers and some are about misinformation. Some are about not yet getting good information. And so we, this is a slower process at this point in time, but our goal needs to be to have that 50% that we're still super worried about dying from COVID-19, having that number reduced by vaccinations and having the rest of us protect them while we work to get them vaccination. We were talking a little bit about how we've had an evolving sense of what the best medical practices, what the best mitigation practices should be. Some of that is because the virus itself has changed over the last year and a half. Some of it is because of the process of science. And as we start to talk about where we're going from here, I think that one thing we're going to end up talking about is how do we get the rest of the segment of American society and then the, the world vaccinated? And one thing you mentioned earlier is that there is a certain amount of vaccine hesitance that is truly a let's take a wait and see approach on this because it does seem like the understanding of what's going on has shifted. And that in itself has created some uncertainty in a certain segment of our population. And so I really want to go right at this kind of straight, straight on. There has been change in scientific and medical recommendations over the last 16 to 18 months. Early in the pandemic, the guidance was, you really don't need to wear masks. Now, there were a lot of reasons for that. I think we should talk about that, actually. Could you explain to our listeners 
what has changed? And more importantly, why has there been a change in guidance? Because it seems to me like this is the normal process of science and people should have a high degree of confidence in what they're hearing from medical and public health leaders. Can you, can you walk us through that a little bit? Sure. And I have to say, I love this question and idea of conversation so very much. I think it's incredibly important. Science is iterative. And what that means is that we do things over and over and over again to learn things. And every time we learn something new, it shifts the way we think about things and, and it will shift what we suggest as being best methods to protect yourself, to protect the people that you love and protect the way you engage in society with an infectious disease. If we were not working to learn things, we would not be doing our jobs. That is what we're trained to do and why we're, we're doing the work we're doing. And so it, it, but it can be confusing. And so science communication is a real art. And I do think that the beginning of the pandemic was scary. It's still scary, but it was very, very scary. It was the thing that everyone was talking about. And, and the goal was to get information out as quickly as possible to keep people from dying and to keep people protected. It, in the process of trying to make sure information gets out really fast, Sometimes the message is lost that we've now, we're now moving and shifting what we know because we've learned something and we've learned something that we want to help protect you with. And so masking went from originally, if you thought fomite transmission was the way we were getting COVID-19, masks weren't really all that important in that conversation. Fomite transmission is really not effective at transmitting this. But if that was the idea, masks weren't a big player. As soon as we learned that respiratory droplets were really the most significant way we can transmit, transmit COVID-19, masks became a huge player. At the same time, we had a supply chain problem. And if people were staying home and we had a need for masks in hospitals that were running out, you could you could make a hierarchy of the masks needed to be in the hospitals because we wanted everyone else at home. And so that was also part of the conversation. Was that well explained in hindsight? No, probably not. The masking conversations now, I think everyone got pretty comfortable about why we needed masks. But then there was a, based on data, a conversation and recommendation that if you were fully vaccinated, you did not need to wear your mask when you were generally, when you were out in public because your vaccines were protecting you. That was pre-Delta. Delta changed that. That wasn't wrong based on the science. However, Delta changed that and science needed to iterate with that, which means now that we have Delta as our primary variant, that is not how we're going to stay safe. We need our masks back on. Now that mask off was a really short period of time. 
It was not as long as we would have all would have liked, but that's how that changed. And I do think when science changes messages like this, and very rarely have we had an entire world hanging on to the sentence or two of a couple of scientists, but when science changes like that, we need to lead with why we're changing it. And here's what we now know, and here's how we're going to move forward together. I think one of the things that I hear you saying is that early on, there were things that we were applying based on a a reasonable degree of confidence, but not an especially high one. We were applying a lot of logic based on, look, this is a novel coronavirus. We've never seen this before. We've seen other coronaviruses. So let's do a little extrapolation from what we know from other diseases, and we'll give you the best guidance we have. One difference that I think doesn't come across to the public is just how much higher the confidence, the scientific confidence is today because of all the science that's been done. When we hear CDC recommendations, when we hear epidemiologists like you speak to the public, it's based on a lot more research and a lot more scientific understanding. So we can feel a high degree of confidence in the guidance that we're getting today. And of course, the other thing I hear you saying is, look, circumstances do change. If I told you this morning, you don't need to bring an umbrella with you because there's only a 20% chance of rain, that was the right recommendation. If the forecast changes and now it's an 80% chance of rain and you say, bring an umbrella, the response for me should not be, well, I don't trust you because this morning you were saying no. Something changed along the way. So I just... I, again, I'm, I'm spiking the football or whatever sports analogy one wants, but I do find this incredibly important that I just think this is normal science and it would be, it would be good if, if people could understand better. Yes, we understand that in the rush of the triage of March and April of, of 2020, scientists were doing the best they could with a more limited degree of confidence. Now the degree of confidence is much, much higher. A hundred percent, much, much higher. You know, a bunch of us, lots of epidemiologists and scientists working in infectious diseases, particularly in COVID-19, this is really all we've thought about for the last 18 months. And so what we know now is remarkably different than what we knew in March of 2020. So you're a hundred percent correct in saying my degree of confidence in saying your mask is one of the ways out of this COVID-19 because of the Delta variant. I feel very, very confident in saying that. I also feel very, very confident in saying everyone's vaccination status matters to every other person as well. We We are dependent on each other in this. Infectious diseases do not let one person make a decision in a vacuum because we share our infectious diseases with each other. And that is a message that is also incredibly important. And that's actually one we knew from the beginning. It is as science and information about the Delta variant changes, it becomes an important thing to say over and over again. We're really dependent on each other to get out of this pandemic. Well, you're starting to paint a picture of where I think we're going in this conversation, which is how do we get out of this pandemic? So maybe we should start with the end. What is the end game here? There's been some discussion in the popular press, and I'm sure it's been a lot more robust in the scientific and technical uh, journals about 
what does the end state look like? And earlier in the pandemic, there was a question of, could we reach herd immunity, a, a level where are not, where the amount that we spread this thing becomes so low that functionally it starts to die out. My understanding is that there's some question about whether that's still realistically achievable in America and in the world, but there may still be a not too bad end game to this. So what is the end game or what are the possibilities if we don't know for sure yet? Well, I think, you know, we need to look at history for a second and recognize that we have eradicated almost no diseases ever across the world. And I wish that wasn't the case, but it is. And so I think it is realistic to anticipate that we will reach what we call an endemic level of COVID-19, a regular normal, we expect to see it a certain amount that we're going to live with. But what I, I urge us to not accept is that that endemic level comes with deaths and that it comes with a lot of hospitalizations and it comes with a lot of suffering. And so an endemic level of COVID-19 that we should be willing to accept is one where because of our vaccination status, we might have a respiratory infection. We might need to stay away from other people. We might need to put our mask back on, but we are not going to be very sick and we're not going to be spreading it to a bunch of other people because they're going to be protected by their vaccine. We can live with that. We live with a lot of things that are like that. But what is unacceptable is to accept an endemic level, have our current epidemic be our new endemic level that we accept, which means we are going to be losing people who are dying of something that we can prevent on a daily basis. We cannot accept that. We should not let anyone accept that. I suspect that the way to get from here to there to an endemic level where COVID-19 is something that we live with. But look, as you say, we get colds, we get other respiratory infections, we even get flus, which we've, we've come to ex expect that there's a certain amount of death and hospitalization that happens with flus, but we do our best and it's, it's, it's something that we live with. I'm suspecting that the way from here to there is largely about vaccination. Is that right? Or are there other ingredients in the mix? It is very much about vaccination, but there are other ingredients as well. And so, you know, vaccinations are, this is, that's going to be our most sustainable way to move forward to an endemic level where people are not dying and being hospital and our hospitals are not being overrun with COVID-19. It's really our, our best way. And we need to think about it globally. We cannot do it locally only and think that that's going to work because again, back to this idea of we're all dependent on each other and we're a mobile society. And we need to understand that being mobile means we're going to take it with us or get it from, uh, you know, other mobile folks who come in contact with us. But a couple of, of things at, at the moment, other public health prevention really is important. Our masks are really important because Delta changed what we had from the previous variants. The previous variants, as a vaccinated person, I was not going to be very good at transmitting it to anyone, even if I came in contact with it. The Delta variant changed that story for us. It's not that we learned something different. 
it changed. And so now as a vaccinated person, if I come in contact with COVID-19 of the Delta strain, I can transmit it in those couple of days while I'm waiting for my vaccine to create a big, huge response in my body. I may still never get sick. I'm very unlikely to get sick, but I can still carry it in my nose and my mouth and give it to someone else who's unvaccinated. So my mask is a very important additional layer to my vaccine. The other thing to consider is that the faster we vaccinate people and the more we keep our masks on right now, the less place we're giving COVID-19 to change again. Every single new case is another possibility of this virus mutating. And so far, we've not seen this vi virus mutate in a way that is ineffective. We've only seen it mutate in methods that are more effective and more spreadable. And so we want to keep future mutations from happening because we don't know how well our vaccines will work against them. And we don't want to have to guess how well they're going to. Delta is bad enough, but our vaccines are still super good against it. So let's stop the mutations. And we need to do that by keeping the spread down. Distancing, masking, and vaccines all have a role to play with vaccines being the predominant role, the most important thing that we need to accomplish. As you said, we're at about 50%. Now, later this year, hopefully later this year, it's anticipated that we'll have at least emergency approval for kids aged five to 12. And so that will break off a whole new chunk of the population where we now can, at least in theory, get them vaccinated. But there is still this vaccine resistant, vaccine hesitant segment of the population. How do we get more of those folks to take vaccines? Uh, I spend so much time thinking about both of the, uh, these two different things that you just brought up. First of all, let's, let's spend just a moment on the kids. I, I cannot wait for us to be able to vaccinate kids five to 12 and then under the age of five, you know, they're back in school in most parts of the country in the Southeast where we're currently suffering disproportionately from the Delta spread and hospitalizations. You know, our kids are back in school and they've only been back for about two weeks. And so that's a place of very, very high concern from, from a segment of our population by age that we didn't see a lot of hospitalizations in previously. It's a myth that they couldn't be super sick, but now they're some of our most vulnerable and we all need to be working to protect them. As far as, um, as, far as vaccine hesitancy, and the population that's currently not been vaccinated, there are still groups of people who have barriers to vaccines. And so if you are an employer and you've got people who are not yet vaccinated, you need to really consider how to urge them forward to vaccines. And some of that means giving them time off at work, making sure they have paid sick leave for getting the vaccines and potentially not feeling super great for a day or two afterwards. And so that is a really important way to support people moving forward, making sure that you that they have access to, to childcare during that time. And people are very concerned about what if I can't take days off? 
if I don't feel super great after my vaccine. We did a really good job of normalizing. You might not feel well after your vaccine. And the unintended consequence of that very true statement is that some folks cannot miss those days of work. And so we need to help them. The other, the, if you look at another portion, there's about 15% of the United States who really just say, I'm not getting vaccinated. And that is really unfortunate. But there's another 15% who are still in this. I'm not a hard no, but I'm not yet a yes. And, and that group needs a lot of information, needs a lot of access, and needs a lot of time to be able to ask questions. And so my urgency is not, it cannot be translated to having to push them. They, we need to respect the questions, give them the space to get, to be able to ask them and, and really good people to answer those questions. And so vaccines in every clinician's office, vaccines at every single pharmacy, vaccines at your grocery store, vaccines at your church, vaccines at your Anywhere you go, become part of that. And it's, it's a consistent message. The work I'm doing to help vaccinate harder to reach communities in Atlanta, it's about repetition of showing up, answering questions, note, them knowing I'll be back again next week. They can ask some more questions and starting to build trust. That's really, really important. There's also a group of folks who say they're waiting for the full FDA approval, which we expect to see around Labor Day. So just another couple of weeks. I really hope that's what they're waiting for. I fear that that is a current statement. And when that full FDA approval comes, that concern will shift to something new. But I really do hope that a, a lot of people will feel more confident at that point and then we'll find their way to a vaccine. One of the things that I take away from what you just said is that I, I remember back earlier in the very first phase of the pandemic, we were all talking about flattening the curve. And at the time, the limiting constraint in our healthcare system was we don't have ventilators. We don't have ICU beds. This was about, you know, we're going to have to pass through the eye of this needle here. So if we can just spread that out, if we can delay things, you might get sick, but if it, we're going to be in such a better position to take care of you if we can make if we can have you get sick two or three months later. And I'm feeling a little bit, just a little bit of a redux of that kind of idea when it comes to our age five to 12 population, of which I am the father of three. And I, I would almost plead with people to listen to what Dr. Test just said. This is about at this point taking care of and protecting the people who are not vaccinated. We are talking largely about these young children who are not vaccinated. And as Dr. Guest just said, can get very sick. It is a myth that they do not get sick. And so not just on behalf of my kids, but think about the kids. Will no one think of the children? Well, please think of the kids out there who do not have this choice yet. If we can get to the end of this year, if we can delay the, the, the time where they're going to be exposed, if we can just push the calendar back long enough so that they get access to vaccines, we can help an awful lot of kids. One final question for you. What have we learned in all of this experience? What have you learned as an epidemiologist that we can apply to the next pandemic? Because I don't want to bum everybody out, but it's a scientific 
virtual certainty that there's another disease out there. There's, there's another bat harboring something or another pig or another chicken. And at some point, we're going to face another pathogen that can do us worldwide harm. So what have we learned about preventing that and mitigating it when it does inevitably happen? Well, I think that we learned that underfunding the infrastructure of our public health system in the United States is a very bad idea. And so this pandemic came at a time when we had no pandemic response team in the United States. It was um, eliminated two years before COVID-19 happened. That was very unfortunate. We also know that public health infrastructure across the United States has been underfunded for decades. And that has been a problem. So I hope we will see the need to make sure that we have a more robust public health infrastructure and that that's set up. I think we will have learned that the um, ability to mobilize vaccines instantaneously across an entire country or the world needs some serious thought and creativity and organization. I think that we are, for the first time, really in a pandemic where we need to stop and consider what social media does, what it can do to help, what it can do to hinder, how to control those messages. As scientists, I don't think we were really prepared to fight on Facebook on a regular basis. We were prepared to do our work. And I spend an inordinate amount of time having conversations on Facebook. And I really feel like I need to, because that is where a tremendous number of people are getting their information. I also hope we've learned that the very first couple of messages that come out because of 24-hour news cycles, because of our access to information, because of social media, we can't undo those very well. And so we need to be very careful about how we say things. And then lastly, I'll, I'll end with, I think we've learned how much leadership matters and, and the conversation about what we choose to do together, what we choose to do for each other is really important and that public health is about all of us because it affects all of us. Dr. Jody Guest of Emory University, thank you so much for walking through all of this on Great Ideas. 